0: Well, that was weird. Welcome to the Crash the Pawn podcast. I don't know what happened with their intro video, so for those of you watching, I just had to shut it off. But welcome. It is a Monday night, November 28th, and Felix is not here. CJ is not here. This is the Crash the Pawn podcast debut of Mike DeFlorio. You've heard him referenced in our Twitch chat as Dflo. You've, uh, you've seen him on the website with his articles. He just had one going up on Crash the Pawn.
1: And welcome, Mike. How's it going? Jake, uh, thanks for the welcome. It's going great. I'm happy to join CTP for the first stream uh, for me from the shores of Pacific Beach in San Diego. Repping the goals as well, obviously. And yeah, it's great to be here. Can't wait to talk about all things Ducks from the past week. Yeah,
0: I mean, you could say that it's a it's a no worries type of day. You could say it's hakuna matata.
1: One might say that it's a problem-free philosophy. One might go. say, but, I, you know, I'll leave that up to the viewer.
0: Exactly, especially Lou. So, we got a couple things to jump into on the show. We actually have a script. Mike came in and is completely just redoing everything on the show. Oh, Felix man. and I typically just fly by the seat of our pants. We have fun conversations. Mike came in with a little bit of a structure, actually, here. and so Felix
1: feel threatened. Should Felix feel threatened? No. Sorry. Okay. sorry, okay. sorry okay. Mike. I mean, sure. Okay, l- l- let's
0: go yes. Let's go yes. Felix Felix big time me today. He was on the PDO cast. Everyone go listen to it. It was really, really good. And amazing. now it's a now it's definitely a, a Mike and Jake show. So um we're gonna start though talking about briefly the the Ducks put out on Duckstream the the Beaker. I think they renamed it from the beak to the beaker. Today, a uh, 15-minute quick, kind of quick-hitting interview from Alexis Downey with Pat Verbeek. I was actually a little concerned when I hadn't seen a second episode go up after that first one that maybe the episode that the podcast had maybe died. But yeah. I was really happy to see when Alexis Downey put out a message that there was going to be an episode today or put out some quotes from it and the episode went up because, I mean, to be quite honest, we'll get into the games briefly in a bit, but after the loss against the Kraken last night, I had a tweet that that kind of got some pushback a little bit, that kind of were, we're getting to the point at, what, 22 games in for the Ducks? Um, uh, I think, let me double check that, but 22, 21 games in for the Ducks, that just something has to give, That right? It, it feels like something has to give, something has to change, there's just something off with this team, we've gone over it in depth. We've talked about how we would fix the Ducks. What's wrong with the Ducks? There's a whole lot of things with that. And so we're not going to kind of belabor that point again if you want to listen to that. Go, nothing's changed from the last couple episodes, 22 games in. Um, but it, it just feels like it's time for a change. It, and it either needs to be that, which we've gone into depth on, ways to change things up in the on past episodes. Um, or I thought Pat Verbeek really needed to say something. Yeah. Because coming into the season... While some people might tell you, well, what did you expect? This team was going to be bad. There's a lot of revisionist history, I think, within that. Pat Verbeek had said last year that they were in the middle of a rebuild, which means that they should not be on a 50-point pace uh, or a sub-50-point pace for the season. You look at the moves he made. This is not a team that, by the basis of their roster, should be where they're at. And so I think it was a necessity for, for Pat Verbeek to just put something out there because Bob Murray never did. That was a a big issue um, among a lot of other things. But I think it it was really refreshing, though. And let me know if you agree with that. But it was really refreshing to just be able to hear Pat Verbeek in this format with where the team's at, just have this thing. And I thought that this podcast and this setup um, from Duckstream was one of the most intriguing things when they announced everything.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. I thought both the fact that... Verbeek is giving access to the fans directly Mm -hmm. through the beaker is fantastic. But also, I think Jake, you touched upon this in Discord and maybe in uh, on Twitter as well. I was really impressed and kind of surprised at the actual questions that Alexis asked Verbeek in this. To the point, yeah, especially during the first half, right? Yeah.
0: I, I was I was about to say that, so I'm happy you brought that up because, yeah, I, I think she didn't shy away from it, and I think that that was one thing I really want to see with this still being – it still is a, a Ducks podcast, so uh, yeah. it, it, I would completely understand why she might shy away from those questions, but to her credit and to the Ducks' credit and to Pat Verbeek's credit, the questions were asked about you and mentioned that you were going to assess Dallas Aiken's job after the season. Are you still planning on doing it? Like that is not an easy question to necessarily ask the general manager when you're new with the franchise and you're doing the podcast for them and everything like that. And she didn't shy away from asking kind of what's gone wrong. And and I think that that was really impressive. So um, you had transcribed a few things for, for us, for, for this show. And so just wanted to kind of briefly just quick hit some of the points that, that Pat Verbeek said and kind of, at least relay it. Everyone should go listen to it. It's a really quick listen to, but just kind of add. Listen,
1: yes. Yeah. yeah. Right.
0: But just to add our point. So his first, uh, the first thing was kind of, what is your overall reaction to the first quarter of the season? And he said, disappointing. Um, he thought they would be at or near 500. Um, and the first 10 game, he kind of looked at it in two different sets of 10 games. The first 10 games, they didn't compete hard enough in the last 10 games. They've had better. They've been better. They've had more compete overall. But overall, really what's been a struggle is special teams because it's just put them behind the eight ball. Um, and basically he said it's not just young players that, that are making mistake; It's young players and veterans. So what were your overall takes kind of on that big snippet?
1: So I thought it, uh, it was really interesting to me. So I didn't think there was anything, you know, super scathing or super headline news about any of Verbeek's responses. I will say that the fact that he led straight up with that he was disappointed and actually cited a particular expectation he had mm-hmm. for the team through the first quarter of the season, I thought that was notable. Um, I think also uh, one notable thing here is that he didn't call out any sort of coaching or strategic decisions as you know deficiencies through the first quarter of the season, and that was sort of echoed, I think, in the the following questions that Alexis. Or the, the following question that she asked about the coaching staff, but he didn't get specific in that criticism. But he did kind of lead right off with saying he's disappointed, and I don't know what you think, Jake, but to me that is some further evidence that Verbeek was not looking at this season from the beginning as a tank. Yeah, he was no. not. Looking, yeah.
0: 100%. And the thing is, you look at a lot of the projection models, right? A lot of the projection models had the ducks coming in low 80s, 82 points, 83 points. I think you were probably. I think you were in the same boat as as me and Felix, of thinking this could maybe be a playoff team if everything broke right. And so, right. being super optimistic, maybe put them high eighties, low nineties in terms of points. So we were on the upper end of of the standard deviation from the projections. But if you're looking at the median for those projections, they were all low eighty points, something around there. And that's kind of right where Pavlebik had this team for his projection for where they'd be right now. Five hundred. Remember, eighty two yeah. points is five hundred. That's yep. five hundred hockey. And so. That kind of goes hand-in-hand with, I guess, the discussion I was having with people on Twitter last night of what did you expect from this team? Right. Um, And I said I expected them to be better than this, and it seems like Pat Verbeek was the same. His moves this offseason, the way the team played last year, and also there were people that talked about what the team lost. Well, that also completely ignores the fact that you have – uh, internal development from a trevor egress from a, a uh from trevor egress from Troy Terry from all these guys and so I, I thought it was fascinating that he started off right there and I yeah. think that it, some people may say and that well what is he gonna say like he expected them to be bad that he's tanking all this stuff and sure but he didn't have to say that he was disappointed and exactly state where he thought the team would be at That's and that it. gives you at least a reference point of where what he was trying to do this year and trying to essentially build a team that might not be the most they, maybe he didn't view them as a playoff team. Maybe we were higher on the, on the ducks than he even was. Right. Um, but this is a team that has underperformed. And I think the calling out of special teams is, is accurate. You look at how bad they've been. I think that there is something too. They've been a bit better the last 10 games. I think it's a little bit more up and down, but they, they have been better. And so kind of jumping into the next big point, he Alexis Downey asked him, is it your intention Previously, you had mentioned that you would evaluate the coaching staff at the, she said end of the year specifically, but I think that means season. I just thought it was interesting that it was year, but I think that meant season and more or less, more or less Pat Verbeek said, yes, we're, we're still, that's still our plan. We're still going to evaluate at the end. Uh, 20 games is just not enough of a runway. And that kind of goes hand in hand with a bit of why he said he uh, extended Dallas Akins. Um, that it wasn't fair to, to Dallas. And he kind of gave an anecdote in this interview, more or less saying that it sometimes in the AHL, because remember he was an AHL GM for the the Red Wings. It can take until January for guys to be able to get their, their feet underneath them. And so I think he wants to see until then. I don't think in my opinion though, that this fully ruled out that Dallas Aikens is safe.
1: So that was going to be my question for you, Jake. How much do you, to what extent do you believe uh, you know, and you can assign a range of outcomes based on how the ducks play going forward for the remainder of the season. Mm -hmm. But is it, do you believe Pat for in this case, do you believe that he's committed to seeing the coaching staff through the entire season in terms of guiding this team?
0: No. Well, kind of it's a very yes and no, No. Very, very typical. Um, because he did, he did say at the very end that he wants to give the coaching staff and players time to figure this out. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that time is necessarily an entire season. Agreed. I think if we hit the 40-50 game mark and it's just not clicking and there's someone that he's able to bring in that makes sense, then I think he does it. Yeah. And this is one of those things, right, that I think you and I both would disagree on. That I think... At this point in time, structurally, this team is just not okay. They need a new voice in there. They need something different in there. And I I very much do disagree with Verbeek on this. But I do think that, and this was one of my big takeaways from this, was that, and going into this, this was something I had said last night, that just having some transparency here is so important because at least it gives you insight to the way he's thinking. And while I disagree with this, I'm happy that he at least said this part of it because it gives you insight to his thought process at least and transparency into the way he's approaching this team. And I think that that is the pivotal and critical part of this interview and why this podcast is very important to go and listen to as a Ducks fan.
1: So I don't know if you have anything
0: else. Um, Okay, so the other things he brought up were what are the primary causes of the special team struggle? And he had kind of more or less said execution, but also developing trust between players due to new personnel um, and also call, called out the the D zone coverage. And so something also you didn't know, right here that really sticks in my head um, because yes, trust was a big thing. And it's funny that on the PDO cast today, Dimitri and Felix were talking about this bit and mm-hmm. how Dimitri classified the ducks defensive zone scheme as someone with a laser pointer and a cat chasing it around. <laughs> and that's how the ducks defense is with the pocket times. And, Felix kind of had a very smart point that that goes hand in hand with Pat Verbeek saying there's not trust that Mm -hmm. one, if one player doesn't think his teammates doing his job, that he's going to overcommit and try to do that job, which then suffers and suffers and suffers. And it comes down to everyone's almost trying to be be a, do a bit too much and also being a bit too puck focused. Um, And I think that that was important. And the other thing that Pat Verbeek really said that I think stuck out to me personally was he kind of said these automatic plays aren't automatic right now and he specifically had mentioned like on the power play and it's funny that he said this because this is something we've harped on right quick puck movement yeah and he's like more or less pat verbeek said you can't just hold on to the puck and dust it off in the league you have to have quick puck movement to get goalies moving to get defenders to open up their seam or if you have the puck on your stick he didn't say this but this is also part of it you have to be move have movement have movement have movement have movement movement. and then and uh as for the penalty kill he had mentioned that um, when guys have their back towards the goal and they're facing the boards, he's like, that's where you have to pressure them. And cause he, he kind of went into his scouting and coaching mindset on this. And he said, you have to pressure them and really limit their ability to move the puck to, or figure out what their, their lanes are going to be for passing and try to take those away. And he said, that's missing right now. And it's just fascinating because both of those things are somewhat systematic or systematic. Right, for the team. They're part of the system.
1: Yeah, so they could be taken. I I think it's a really good point. They could be taken as almost indirect criticism of coaching without mm-hmm. actually calling it out in the interview. So it may not have been intentional. You don't know what his intentions were yeah. going into the interview, but mm-hmm. I think the fact that that's what came out of that topic of conversation is telling. Yeah. One way or another, Verbeek does see and identify some systematic structure issues in the special teams and I think in the team as a whole. Right. So yeah, I agree. Yep. Um,
0: okay. And then anything else from that? We're, we're almost at 17 minutes, which is as long as that podcast was. So anything else you want to touch on from that, the interview, um, outside of just telling people to go listen to it?
1: Yeah, no, I think you said it. I mean, Alexis did an amazing job there. And yeah, I think harping on that point that, You know, Verbeek made these proclamations in that interview that, you know, he'll evaluate the coaching staff at the end of the season. But I think if you read a little bit in between the lines and listen to his full responses, I don't think that that's bulletproof. I think it's likely. But, you know, if this uh, season continues trending the way that it has and Verbeek continues to observe some of the issues that he's commenting on in that interview, you know, that's not a guarantee. So we'll have to see how that plays out.
0: I'm going to go ahead and do this, and I hate myself for doing it because Felix is not here. But I'm going to bring up the Montreal Canadiens and oh, what they did oh. last year. And no, but it, it is a good example, though, right? Where Dom Ducharme was not handling it well for them, he was not doing a good job for them. Yeah. And instead of writing it out and just simply letting that team be bad and get the first overall pick from that perspective. They changed coaches and while they still lost, there was a much better structure that was in place. And so I think that that is something to look at to maybe take it as a lesson learned from another team.
1: Sure. And also it makes you think about how does Verbeek view the issues that we're talking about with coaching potentially and the development of the young players. So does he eventually get to that point where, you know, he was a player, he was on successful teams and he was on poor of-
0: ones also in some of his old interviews or not old interviews and in interviews they had when he took the job or maybe it was over summer I can't remember but he talked about on the Devils when he first joined them and they were bad, right?
1: right. So he's so- had experience in those sort of ramping up of of success on teams and I think he has a feeling especially coming from the Red Wings who are you know you could argue exiting their rebuild now a little bit faster than the Ducks maybe he's, he kind of knows the ingredients for coaching that could poison the development for young players. And so we, it bears watching. We have to see how it plays out, but I think we, as fans and, and kind of constructive criticism, uh, watchers of the team, we see some of these things with system in the team. And I wouldn't be surprised if for sees them too, and is paying close attention.
0: Yeah. You got to think that he is, if we're able yeah. to spot the, these issues, spot these things pretty easily, then you would expect him to be the same. Right. Um, Alright, so let's just we're gonna do a very brief uh recap just of the, the past week for the Ducks because we should bring this up. The Ducks got their first regulation win of the season. They they did not set the NHL record for the most games without a regulation okay. win. They uh were w- what? The record was what twenty wasn't the record twenty games? I'm
1: not sure. It sounds like it sounds right. Yeah. They were yeah. approaching
0: it. So they would have been if they would have lost if they would not have won the rangers game in regulation they would have tied the record i think is okay. the way that it would have worked so okay. they got their first regulation win against the rangers uh yeah dalton Key is confirming yeah it was 20 okay. um, so let's just briefly talk about this week this was not a good week for the ducks though nope um i think even looking at, at even that rangers performance the only the the rangers game they were able to have some high quality plays right They had Troy Terry doing Troy Terry things. That was the game I think that Demutia Kulikov had that weird goal that went in. Um, But that was a game that was really built upon the back of a a vintage John Gibson performance. Absolutely. And John Gibson turned back the clock and just had an absolutely outstanding game. And that was the primary reason that they they won that game. I don't know if, if you agree or disagree with that at all.
1: No, I completely agree. And one thing that I would point out about this game, which mm-hmm. I forget if I mentioned it in Discord or on Twitter or wherever, but if you look at the game flow for the Ducks game against the Rangers, so they were definitely, um, you know, winning the expected goals for percentage battle um, and being competitive in the the Corsi for percentage battle for the first two periods, but this was a classic Dallas Akins game where in the third period the Ducks completely cratered. Once they got a lead, if you look at the game flow in terms of the shots generated, the chances generated, the Ducks completely collapsed from an on-ice metrics perspective in that third period. Natural Statric has their expected goals for percentage at 9% for the third period. And that's not because their team, you know, there wasn't a roster turnover between the second and third period. That is 100% coaching. So even in this win... Which listen, we all loved it, right? Like we were celebrating, and it felt good as Ducks fans to get that win. And it was at home, and it, you know it's going into the holiday weekend. It was great, yeah. but there's still it was, a,
0: it was a feel good moment. It was one where you and I can look at the fact that this was not a good performance. They've had some good performance that uh, performances that they should have had some regulation wins and by like the fact that they didn't have a regulation win by game 20 was a bit of a variant situation. Right. Sure. And, and so this was maybe a little bit of a course correction on some things. Um, but this was, I, I think, so in that moment, right, you can enjoy it. You can say this was a fun game. Cause it was a fun game. Oh, yeah. I think from that perspective, especially the first two periods, it was yep. wide open. It was entertaining. And like you said, said, the, the ducks yeah. were going back and forth. I, it felt like Dallas Akins. this was, I think the second time the ducks had entered the third period. No, this was the first time that the ducks had entered the third period with the lead in a game, I think. Um, and they sat back hard. They sat back hard and they decided to, um, to really try to sit on that. And John Gibson came up big and that's really what matters there, but that's not a sustainable way to win a game. And some of it score effects, but The numbers that we look at, so expected goals for a percentage in that game was 42%. That is score and venue adjusted. So that accounts for score effects. By the way, just want to say this. Someone put it in our uh, Twitch chat, and I'm now seeing it on Instagram. Uh, Troy Terry is going to be a dad. Congratulations to him. Uh, Yeah. Happy to announce a baby boy will be joining the Terry family next year. Congratulations to him. That's
1: awesome. And in a wonderful time of year, too. Congrats, Troy.
0: Yep. I think he got married over summer, now a baby on the way. So good news for the Terry family. That's awesome.
1: Congratulations to him. You One could say that life is hashtag very good for the Terry family it, right yes, now.
0: Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, all right. So the other two games, uh, I mean, the Ottawa game was just bad. Just, just big bad. Um, I don't yep. really know if we want to talk too much about it, but um, you know, the Ducks man. didn't play well.
1: I might get PTSD if we talk too much about it. So, yeah. yeah. And
0: then the Seattle game, same thing. Not great. The one thing that I think is noticeable or notable about the the Seattle game is in the Ottawa game, the penalty kill was garbage and not good. And that really put them behind the eight ball um, in that game. And then they also lost the 5v5 battle. Against Seattle, they scored, what was it, three power play goals in that game? And so the power play was actually clicking. There was a lot going on. And I think there deserves some credit to the coaching staff for making changes to the power play to, at least for the first unit, the second unit still just, it is what it is. Right. Um, But their credit needs to be given to that, to, to modifying that first unit. Right.
1: Yes, no, absolutely. And that's something that we've been touching upon for a lot of the season, right. Kind of a complaint about the proportionality of TOI for Mm PP one and PP two. So we want to see that going forward. It doesn't have to be 50, 50 and it shouldn't be 50, 50.
0: Yeah, it, yeah. And so but the the big change as everyone probably knows with the first unit is they really modified the the structure. First off, Klingberg granted Klingberg's been hurt, but Klingberg is is no longer on the unit. It uh it's Fowler up at the point. Then you have Zegris on his strong side as compared to on his offside. You have Mason Mctavish on the right side. You have Terry lining up below the goal line, which is a new look that I don't think the Ducks power play has ever had of having someone very specifically to line up below the goal line, and then Henrique kind of in this midway between front net and bumper position, mm-hmm. and it's really given some interesting looks because it allows Zegers to to scan and try to make a pass, but it also means if people if the the defenders try to commit a bit too much to him and he gives the puck to to Terry, Terry can crash the net and go at it quick, which he was able to do and score against the Kraken in that manner. Um, Or he's Terry's so creative. He's able to move the puck and be creative from below the goal line and do a low to high pass for a shot. And so it just opens up a lot of lanes in a very unique and different way. And I think when you're in the, the way or where the NHL is at now, right? Analytics are huge. Obviously video review is huge teams are really able to key in on what you want to do and try to understand how to stop it best. And so I think when you're able to come up with a unique system that, quite frankly, and maybe this is just because we primarily watch the Ducks and the Ducks have never used this system. I I don't think I've seen other teams use this that often. Um, But it really throws probably a wrench in the penalty
1: killing game
0: because it's not something that they're used to defending, so they're not able to defend it uh, like it's their second nature.
1: Right. They basically have to adjust on the fly in
0: that mm-hmm. case. Yeah. yeah. Or, well, it's not even adjusting on the fly because I think that they're probably drilled about what the Ducks would want to do if the Ducks have now done this for four or five games. But you still have that second nature in your head, right? Of how you're defending games how, or how you're defending on the penalty kill. And what you're doing throughout the season, the system that you're employing, it may become the the playoffs is a little bit different. But when teams are jumping from team to team to team, they may be drilled, but they still have their system in place. And they're still used to how they're defending. And when you have this different type of system, it makes it a little bit more difficult. So sure, uh, just, just something to point out. Um, but yeah, anything else about the games that you want to touch on?
1: I don't think so. I think another thing to note for the cracking game, if you look at the goaltending performance, so obviously John Gibson left that game with an injury. Oh, that's right. We should mention that. Later on, right. But according to uh, Lisa Dillman, he's traveled with the team to Nashville. Okay, good. So I would assume Stolars gets that start tomorrow, but we'll see. I mean, if it's a kind of thing where Gibson has been able to bounce back quickly, maybe we'll see him. Um, but yeah, overall looking at, the performance, that wasn't Gibson's best game either, right? From an an all perspective for GSAX, it wasn't great. But I think we can agree that, that that game was kind of a mixed bag for the team in general. So,
0: Yeah, the defensive zone structure was not great. I go back and forth on some of the goals where they're just awful looks, but does Gibbs, should Gibson get a piece of that? I mean, it's the overall back and forth that I constantly have on this, right? Where yeah. the defense isn't doing him any favors, but you also as a – It's one of those things where is it not being fair to him if you're saying that, hey, you got to make some of these saves because they are high-quality saves. But the most elite goalies in the league do make those saves uh, a decent amount. And so that's just one thing um, to put in mind. Uh, Let me ask you this, actually, really quickly. Mm -hmm. How much of this drop back do you attribute to Nathan Boyu being back from the lineup?
1: Um, could be substantial. Yeah, well... I mean, he's I mean, a
0: third-pairing defenseman, so it's hard to give him that much of the flack, right. but, I mean, you look at that cracking game, right, and the miscommunicate the miscommunication that him and Zegers had re- directly resulted in two goals against.
1: Sure. So I think there's a couple things that I would say here. So the first point we should make overall about Gibson is that I think he's been trending upwards in the last, you know, 10 games or so. He started out the season really rocky, and especially mm-hmm. shorthanded. If you look at some of the um delineation metrics that evolving hockey provide for even strength and shorthanded which we can get into the uh, debate about the merits of that but gibson was performing reasonably well at five on five but really struggling shorthanded it seems like that's gotten better and it seems like his overall play has gotten better and he's had games like he did against the rangers where you could argue he stole the game right Mm -hmm. like that third period if he wasn't fantastic when the ducks were employing that super conservative cratering strategy They may not have won that game. So I think he's been overall better, but I do agree with you um, about the the influence of the defense as well on his ability to perform. And it kind of gets to this larger point that it's hard to decouple all of these things when they're happening at the same time on ice, right? We look at these metrics for GSAX for goalies or on Mm -hmm. ice metrics for defensemen, but uh, they're not completely independent from each other. So Gibson's performance could absolutely be impacted by coaching decisions like insisting on playing Boullier as a third liner.
0: you. I, 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 I know. I know. Oh, man. I'm going to blame Lou for this. There I, you, like- I know. Okay. All right. Lou, this is your fault. It, it's Lou's yeah. fault. I'm just, just trying to help here. Um, no, and I agree. And that's something I've kind of been going back and forth on, right, is – I think the, stat, the stats that we use are always important. And I think they're they're important to look at. They're better than simply just looking at save percentage. But the thing I I'm i kind of going back and forth on is, right, at the end of the day, Gibson, underneath Dallas Aikens, has been subpar. Yep. And Over the question, the, that is, and that's just not, that's just what's happened. That's reflective of what's happened. And that's how he's been. And I think there is a conversation that can be had, though, Um about whether Dallas Aikens has implemented a system that has been beneficial to John Gibson's play style. Mm-hmm. And so that is a mix of optimizing the game for your goalie. And that has not put the goalie in a spot to succeed, which has then resulted in these poorer numbers. And so it, it's, it's, I mean, I'm stealing Felix's phrase here. It's whether it's the chicken or the egg on this one. I, I still think that Gibson has, obviously we both agree with us taken a big step back overall over the last couple of years, Um, but
1: yeah, well, um, here's the deal. The only period of time that we've really seen Gibson consistently perform, you know, at an elite level, like he did prior to Aikens was -hmm. the first half of last season, right? He was legitimately an all-star goaltender, Mm -hmm. but he completely fell off a cliff during the second half of that season. And that was even before Verbeek dealt, you know, uh, blue liners like Manson and Lindholm. Right. So yeah. yeah, he's been very inconsistent overall during the Aikens era. I think that is fair. And that speaks to some of the concerns that you are uh, articulate about strategy and how it might affect him.
0: Yep. All right. Uh, so uh, Lou saying, by the way, you told us the deal finally. Wow. That, 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 that's a deep cut for the
1: Discord. And um, he's also smiling through it all. Let's all right. It it's
0: time for a word from our sponsor. So it's never too early to play holiday music, and it's never too early to start thinking about gifts, whether it's for a friend or the friends in your pants. You can make it th- make this season uh, a season to be jolly with Manscaped. Do your little drummer boy a favor and use the Lawnmower 4.0 to avoid another silent night in the bedroom. Then add in Manscaped's top-of-the-line shower products to have the people thinking, "All I want for Christmas is you." Santa cares about his sack, and so should you. Look nice when you get naughty by going to manscaped.com and use the code CTP for free shipping and 20% off. So Mike, The Manscaped Platinum Package 4.0 is the one-stop shop for the man who deserves it all. It has everything needed to help you deck the halls from face to balls just in time for mistletoe season. The Platinum Package has each product from the best-selling performance package plus ultra-premium body wash, ultra-premium 2-in-1 shampoo and conditioner, and ultra-premium deodorant. It's the best way to smell fresh from your Santa hat to your candy cane. And the Lawnmower 4.0 Body Trimmer and Weed Whacker Nose and Earhead Trimmer feature proprietary advanced skin-safe technology to protect your delicate presence. Plus, both are waterproof, so there's no no issue clearing the snow out of your driveway. We definitely know a lot about clearing snow out of driveway, right? Um, Yeah, yeah, fair, fair. You have more more, uh, experience than I do. But there's also a uh, 4000K LED light on it. So you can light the way like Rudolph. Hey, I know about that. Uh, Now that you've groomed Candy Cane, it's time to make sure you don't smell like a reindeer with the platinum packages, shower products, all of Manscaped shower gear, sulfate free, vegan and made to have your skin feeling hydrated and smelling fresh. But smelling good doesn't stop at the shower. The Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Ball Toner can solve stank problems all day long. Once they touch your sack, you'll never go back. The Platinum Package 4.0 under uh, sitting under the tree is guaranteed to put anyone in the holiday spirit. And for the perfect stocking stuffer, add in the brand new body buffer, an incredible body scrubber that makes it exfoliating easy and a lot cleaner than the old loofah. So you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code CTP at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code CTP, Manscaped. Get your jingle balls ready for the holidays.
1: <laughs>
0: wow. Wow.
1: All thank, I can say is... Thank
0: you, Manscaped.
1: Here's to Manscaped. Thank you. Wow. To and Manscaped. an incredible job by Jake in reading the ad. Amazing.
0: Yep. 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 All right. Now let's get into to one of the big topics here. You are going to guide me. You are taking over hosting duties so that I don't have to do this anymore, thankfully. There's a reason why Felix typically drives conversation and hosts. It's that... I like more just talking about stuff than having to drive the the conversation. I like to derail things hey, as compared gonna, to keep them on the rails.
1: You're going to be the batter, and I'm going to be the person putting the ball on the tee. There so we go. Th- we're, we're switching roles here. You've done an admirable job thus far. But, yeah, we thought it would be really fun, um, kind of in the spirit of the Eric Stevens article that came out earlier today on The Athletic, which everybody should check out, but also just the fact that we're at approximately the quarter waypoint in the season – um, we thought it'd be cool to go through a little bit of the structure of the quarter season review article that was posted on crash uh on Friday. So check that out if you have not read it yet, but just let's give Jake an opportunity here to give his overall thoughts on the different aspects of this ducks team through the first 20 games. And we'll kind of go in order of the topics that were brought up in the article. And yeah, this'll be a chance for, Uh, you know, us to generate some discussion around the different aspects of the team so far. We know it's been a tough start to the season. We know that the results have not been good. Um, I think if you've been a part of our Discord, uh, which we'll mention a little bit more about later, you know, there's been some constant themes that have come up. So I think this will be a chance to go a little bit more in depth on that. So Jake, I will start here in looking at the team on ice performance that we've observed through the first 20 games. So Here's a question for you. We mentioned the Verbeek interview um, earlier today that Alexis led on the Beaker. Mm-hmm. So in that interview, he mentioned kind of a delineation between the first 10 games and the second 10-game set that the Ducks had played so far this season and mentioning, you know, improvement in the last 10 games, um, different attributes of the team that he felt had taken a step forward. If we look at the game by game, you know, on ice metrics that we cited in our review article. And just from your perspective, watching the team, do you agree with that assessment that the ducks are on somewhat of an upward trend from an on ice perspective in the last 10 games?
0: Ooh, that is a good question. So I'm just right now, just trying to get some, some data very quickly and, and and take a look. Yeah. I'll
1: mention, Um, I mentioned if you pull stuff up Jake that we still through 20 games, and now we've added a couple more since the article was posted. But there were still only two games that the Ducks had at five on five where they were above fifty percent expected goals four percentage. And that was against the Red Wings and the Blackhawks.
0: Yeah. So one of the things I'm kind of looking at right now, one of the the I've really liked Micah's model. Um that's something I've really kind of dove into a lot. Uh HockeyViz, go check it out, hockeyviz.com. And so right now I'm kind of looking – I'm looking at his smooth 5v5 XG chart and it has both against and for. And so I think that they've improved a bit here. I think one of the the big issues for this team, right, and that's something you can also look if you go at evolving hockey, is defensively they were a mess. And I think that – I mean it's not maybe the last 10 games – but I think maybe since, let's see, since the Minnesota game, they've really kind of been able to to slow things down defensively. And if you look at their five v five expected goals against, they did not allow over three. Um. By the way, shout out. We just had someone chime in from Argentina, Juan Pablo Uterbit or Tube. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong. So shout out to him on YouTube. Um. So sorry. Actually, the game against the Rangers, they did allow three point five five. But it feels like things have settled down a bit more lately from a defensive perspective. I think offensively, they're still in the same rut, though, of it's basically the zegras terry henrique line or it's nothing. Although, to their credit, they have found something by finally putting Mason McTavish at center. Um, so maybe they can eventually get a secondary scoreline if they put people around Mason McTavish that aren't named Max Jones or Brett Leeson. Um, that he, and that's not necessarily a knock on them. Max Jones had a really good game, I think against the Kraken where he was able to get in and draw penalties and things like that. But I, and and that
1: line Jake has been effective from an expected goals for percentage perspective, but very low event. So that's not really where you want to see McTavish. And and I other, and I think the other
0: issue with that line, right. Is even if they're driving play the other way, and that that's definitely something that's beneficial to this team long-term, but it's just a thought process right of sure you want your lines to all be driving play towards the other teams net. but it, it's surrounding your top end players with other high-end talent that can finish the puck exactly. because there is something to having finishing talent along with play drivers and i'm sorry but max jones and brett leeson aren't that and so it's a bit of a waste of mason mctavish by not having him with other high-end players that can take advantage yeah. um and so sure in the short term it's fine um i'd rather see that get switched up though even if it's just simply even if it's keeping jones and mctavish together but putting i don't know frank vetrano on the other wing, some something like that yeah like this is just me spitballing right now uh, of just what you could do max comtois when he's when he's healthy put max comtois there just even if you're you're dead set on keeping leeson and mctavish or jones mctavish together that that's one way so jake i thought
1: max comtois was in the doghouse (laughs)
0: he he shouldn't be but yeah so okay so um so yeah so so to get back to your question about the the 10 game stretch I get what he's saying I don't necessarily see it as the two 10 game stretches because I actually think the first 10 games of the season I think after that Boston game they actually started playing well and they were just up against high quality opponents Right, And so I kind of actually disagree there. I do think things have settled down a bit lately from an expected goals against perspective though. And so that that can be seen in the hockey viz uh, data that I'm kind of looking at right now.
1: Yeah. I I agree with you. I don't think you can look at the on ice performance over the first 20 games and neatly break it up that way.
0: So I don't agree
1: with that narrative. The fascinating thing
0: though, looking at it is the smoothed out goals per expected goals. So essentially, how me- are you being affect? Essentially, are you getting lucky, or um, or is your goaltending allowing too many goals, or kind of things like right. that? M- Money puck
1: has a nice thing for that too. Yeah.
0: So yep. goals per expected goals percent, and it's a percentage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I'm reading this chart correctly, and let me double check this, but so the shooting talent uh, perspective of it four has dropped significantly. And on the flip side, they've been allowing more goals per expected goals also. So the percentage is going up on goals per expected goal offense or defensively, and it's going down offensively. Interesting. Yeah. So that's yeah. just something there. But um yeah, so I, I I think they've been I think by if you want to talk about Rubik saying the compete level's been been better, which is what alls is saying. I think I can maybe get behind that because defensively they've been a bit better here. Um, So sure.
1: Especially in in spite of the Drysdale injury, which I think is a, a, I don't know. It's something that maybe defenders of this team will bring up as a reason why the the blue line has struggled so much so far Mm -hmm. this season. But also that speaks to kind of an organizational issue with depth there. Right. A lot of the develop, a lot of the, um, depth in the blue line is developing right now so mm. we're relying on people like shattenkirk like uh you. is that correct <laughs> boy bull, bull you bull you damn okay, like, bull,
0: bull you. Bull like you. bull you're bowling okay. and you, then it's you bull Okay. You.
1: so that's probably you. still
0: wrong but that's closer at least it's closer
1: we'll, we'll have to check with the ducks broadcast to get it to get it perfect but or just
0: check with yeah. felix felix speaks, speaks french
1: there you go But I think it speaks a little bit to roster construction where, and also like the pipeline of development within the organization where an injury to Jamie Drysdale, who was playing better and clearly taking some steps forward, that is kind of really significant in terms of the top six that they can deploy at a night-to-night basis. That didn't help, right? So Mm -hmm. worth mentioning, I think, too.
0: Yep. All right.
1: What next? So let's dive in. I think we hit on some of these other uh, the other portions of this article through mm-hmm. that conversation. But I would – so here's how I would pose the next question. So part of the evaluation that we did for the quarter season review was breaking forwards and defense mm-hmm. into two groups. So I guess my question for you, Jake, is how do you see the team struggles in the first 20 games through the lens of forward play and also – Defensive play. I think there's obviously a large scale perception that on the back end, it's been really bad and that's been driving this, but I think there's maybe some more subtlety there about how the lines have been constructed from a forwards perspective and some other elements that you could hit. Well,
0: And so this is something kind of Felix and I have talked about a bunch, right? Where I think the easy thing when you look at expected goals being poor against the easy thing is to, to key in on the defense and while sure. Yes, we, we can definitely do that. Bull, you has not been good. Chattenkirk's not been good. Klingberg has been a disaster in his own zone. That is kind of, just to be clear, what we expected from John Klingberg. Um, exactly. But I think it's a mix because it's a five-man unit that has to work together. If your blue if your blue liners are being able to break out the puck or get it to a forward and the forward's just chopping it up the boards to give it away and it just allows the other team to come back, that's not doing your defense any favors and they're just being caught continually defending. So I think that there is certainly blame to be had on the defense, but I think that there's also defensively blame to be shared with the forward group. And I think we look at a lot of the, the forward lines and I mean, I, you case in point is Stroma Vitrano together. They just have not clicked with whoever you've wanted to put as the third person on that line, whether it's Pavel Regenda Rig- or, I mean, last night, I guess you can maybe say it worked with Derek Grant being back. And to Derek Grant's credit, as much as uh, myself and a lot of Ducks fans kind of have him a bit maligned um, because of his on-ice play and everything that we know about him as a player, he played well against the Kraken. And that line did a lot better. And that maybe if that's the secret sauce and he can solve the issue with Vetrano and Strom and they can help resolve the Derek Grant issue. Sure. Like, great. I hope it works. I said that in the preseason also about Grant with Jones and Regenda. I hope it works. I hope he's able to provide value for this team. We will
1: grow uh, accordingly if that happens.
0: Well, it's just, <laughs> it's one of those things of just utilizing all the priors to, to get, give an informed decision. But the big issue is just outside of the Henrik Zegers Terry line. There's no line that has really been able to generate offense for and limit. Uh, I guess the the lundstrom silverberg Colm, 12 line did a decent job of yeah. it of limiting chances against, but that line wasn't used that much to be honest. So we still don't really know. And they, um, and they were
1: super low event. So even though they, yeah. you know, they, you could say you you look at the expected goals for percentage and see that they performed favorably, but it was totally different flavor but, of play from the top line.
0: Yeah, so as of right now, let's just say the primary lines are Lundestrom. I I mean, there's no real good sample size of Lundestrom-Silverberg with, with a different person, so let's just leave that line. Out of there for now, I guess. Uh, but let's just go with Henrik Zegers-Terry. We'll do vetrano Regenda strom because that's been used fairly recently as a primary line, and mctavish Leeson and jones And the primary issue is that the the Regenda vetrano strom line is giving up over four expected goals against when they're on the ice, which goes to show that there's something off there, and it's not, especially when you compare that, right? The the fact that that line is out there with similar defenders when they rotate through as the Zegers-Terry-Henrik line. And this right. is kind of where I'm getting at, right? Is that it's a five-man unit issue, because Zegers, Terry, Henrique—they're out there with those similar defenders. And while yes, they still get caught in their zone with some of those defenders, they have done a good job of limiting chances against at two point. They are at two point six seven expected goals against, and so it comes down to to breaking the pocket out of the zone, not making like as much as as much as the broadcast, as much as hockey coach speak is saying, make the simple play, chip it out of the zone, make that play. The only reason why that makes sense is if the puck is in a high danger spot inside the zone, in the, in the slot, in the crease, get it out of there to, to get out of a high danger situation. But if you're along the boards, chipping it out isn't always the best play because it's just going to give up the puck. You want to make a tape to tape pass to lead the puck into transition. And so that's where I get into the fact that, well, I don't think the defense has been great, and I think there have been bad turnovers, and I think specifically the main issue I have with the defense actually is in the offensive zone. And that is what's led to a lot of the breaks against because there are a lot of shots that go into to shin pads or missed passes that lead to to two-on-ones going the other way. We saw that specifically with the one of the goals against the the Kraken where Shattenkirk makes a poor pass across the, the blue line, and Kulikov tries to pinch at it, and it probably wasn't the best play for Kulikov to go after, but he's trying to make up for the poor pass, and it leads to a two-on-one the other way. And I think Kulikov changes also on the way back and puts Bolu on the ice, um, or maybe Bolu jumping in, I may be misremembering, but that leads to miscommunication between Bolu and Zegris that leaves a guy wide open for a goal um, yeah. on the back post. And so that it's funny because in a defensive zone, I actually think the forwards deserve more blame And in terms of transition, I think the defenders are causing a lot of the issues because of their play in the offensive zone.
1: Yeah. And I think, Jake, you and Felix have brought this up before as well. But part of the issue that we've seen from certain defensive players, I think Shattenkirk comes to mind for this uh, in in terms of my recollection here. But the strategy being employed of and it's kind of consistent with this old school messaging of put pucks on net Mm -hmm. on net when you get into the offensive zone. And that's not always the best strategy in terms of generating quality chances in, if a defenseman is doing that, right? Like just taking a point shot and putting the puck on net can lead to these transition uh, opportunities for the opposition that you were alluding to. I'd be interested to look more into like if there are analytics to support that, but that's something we've definitely seen at least in small samples with this defensive court this year. So. Yeah,
0: and I need to find this. It's something I think I heard on a podcast once and I need to really do a dive into. But I think it's something that there's more of a likelihood for a higher expected goals against on a point shot than, a, high, than or, sorry, a higher likelihood of the shot going in or creating a chance against or a goal against than it is a goal for from a point shot because right. of the exactly what we're talking about right here where the puck goes the other way. I mean, at the end of the day... Um, uh, what is it? I'm yeah. It's Kevin Woodley on the PDO cast has brought up. He'll sit next to the, um, he'll sit next to the Washington capitals goalie coach. Um, when the Washington capitals, Kevin Woodley's goalie expert, goalie guru, the goalie guild, really smart dude worth decking out, worth listening to. If you're a goalie geek, um, or just want to learn more about the position because he goes in depth about everything with it. Um, but he brings up the fact that sure a point shot, if you're able to get it through with traffic, that can be effective, right? And it takes someone who's able to get those shots through. It can be effective. He's kind of more coming at it from that perspective than necessarily the perspective that we kind of come from with it where kind of the the probability of things. But he brought up that kind of an unscreened point shot, which we see so many times from this Ducks team, right? An unscreened just kind of shot from the point thrown on net. The Washington Capitals goalie coach will just say that's a turnover. Yeah. Like any time that the Capitals would do that, he would be like, he would tell Kevin Woodley, that's a turnover. That's you a, know like, and, and just it, it's that thought process, right? Where we get into this meth, m- mentality. I think in some ways it's happened because of analytics. And so this is, I think a fascinating conversation. Like I said, I'm happy you're hosting because I'm able to rail shit now and take things off the rails into yep. different spots. Um, no, this is
1: because
0: with this anal- gets, yeah, this gets with,
1: into with, some of the specifics of the defensive play. Like, yeah, continue with,
0: with kind of the the onslaught of analytics and the onslaught and the and Corsi coming on, some people saw thought, well, teams might start to um, try to game Corsi, right, and things like that. And well, yes, that does happen. Certain teams just throw pucks on net from everywhere, and that leads to that. Um, I think at times that is a very smart point from the Capitals' coach, though, where it's a turnover because. The reason why Corsi is effective to look at, and I'll get into a sec about expected goals, but the reason why it's effective to look at is it, it shows you when a team is consistently applying pressure. And if you're taking that shot, you're not going to be able to consistently apply that pressure. So even though it is gaming Corsi in a way, right, of you're throwing a puck on net, it's a non-dangerous shot, you're doing it to improve your, your analytics. But it's not because it's just going to create a face-off and potentially cause a turnover. And more realistically, what you want is you want shots that are going to be able to create more shots and continue the pressure, continue the pressure and actually getting back to the Pat for beak conversation. He mentioned this a lot about pressure mm-hmm. and that's something that I, you hear a lot of smart people that I listen to talk about. And I think Jack Hahn's a huge one about constantly applying offensive pressure, constantly applying, applying pressure. And that's a way that you can create offense for yourself. Um, but now turning that into the, the expected goals conversation, you can't game expected goals. And that's why I think it's such a valuable tool because sure you can have that conversation about Corsi, but that's the purpose of expected goals is to provide context for every shot by adding a quality definer. It's not a zero or one of whether it's a shot attempt for a shot or not a shot attempt for, it is a shot attempt for with this from this location. And so while, And I think that this is an important point to make because there's been a lot of conversation, I think, specifically with John Gibson and things like that about the deficiencies in expected goal models. I think there are deficiencies and things that can be added to them. And I think it's an important thing to always be pushing forward and always be thinking about the next thing. But it is still a better evaluator of play than simply just looking at goals. And it's better, in my opinion, than also just simply looking at Corsi 4 yeah. and sure maybe guys could say scoring chances that that's better and I know some people believe that and just doing a zero or one on whether it came in a scoring chance or not because of various different things but I me personally I think expected goals are the best we have and sure it can get better but it's providing added context and giving you more information I think the the difficult thing right is parsing through what model you kind of think is the best. And I think that's maybe the only hard part with it because you find different models will have a little bit different results that can impact things. So, sorry, that was a complete tangent sidetrack, but I thought it was an interesting thing to bring
1: Uh, up. That was really awesome. I would say one last thing before we move to the last part of the uh, review article, and then maybe we get to some questions. Um, I think the epitome of that first part of the conversation you just instigated there about kind of shots on goal versus quality chances An epitome for that on this Ducks team is Kevin Shattenkirk. If you look historically at his metrics and compare uh, his offensive uh, quality chance generation through expected goals versus his shot generation Mm -hmm. through Corsi, his Corsi is almost always higher. And I think it gets to this concept of putting shots on net from the point, which Shattenkirk does all the time, it doesn't always result in the um, generation of quality chances for the team. I think
0: it's something, I think Cam Strawn said this, and I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think point shots have like a 1% chance of going in. Right. And so you look and, or no, 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 this is what it was. It was 1% of all shots from defensemen went in the net.
1: Okay. Including other shots. So the point shots would be even less than that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And so that's like, and so that just goes to show that like, Sometimes like having that point shot is not really Like it can work from time to time. Right. But it's relying upon puck luck. Yep. It's relying upon bounces going your way. And instead of creating a controlled, a controlled environment where you're creating the chance, you're relying upon chaos that is uncontrollable. Mm -hmm. And while sure, maybe that works. Maybe that's something that you want to do at the end of the game. When every when there's, It's a six on five and there's just absolutely no space. So you're trying to just get some controlled chaos to see what happens, but as something you're working for, that's not necessarily going to work for sure. So
1: agreed. So let's, uh, this is really cool insight. Let's wrap up the quarter season review conversation with two topics. I think the first one we got into a lot, so maybe we can be shorter on this, but goaltending what's been your overall impression of John Gibson. We talked a little bit about, you know, possibly him trending upward recently and some of the struggles that he's had with respect to the defense playing in front of him. And then also Anthony Stolarz, who really hasn't played a huge sample of games. But what's been your impression of goaltending so far with respect to the Ducks' terrible start?
0: I think it's been a little bit disappointing from both aspects of it. I mean, yeah, I'm looking at hockey viz right now, and John Gibson is a negative four. From a GSAX perspective, given up 64 goals, expected goals of 60.1 against. Uh, Anthony Stolars on the other hand, 23.5 expected goals against, 22 goals against. So only slightly above expected. Right. Um, I think the main issue is um, – and it's interesting because the, they provide heat maps. And so I think Gibson's kind of makes sense to me
1: because – is, Are you little it up, Jake? Or is and it show it on up?
0: the screen? Let me
1: see if I can. If not. It's all good, but could be cool to see that if it's possible.
0: Uh, let's try this. Uh, let's. Yeah, because I
1: think this this would this gives some context to the actual numbers that we see. Actually, seeing uh, that
0: distribution. it doesn't work very well because I don't have it set up for this. <laughs> okay. But sure, you can kind of see. We'll, we'll we'll flip back in a sec. Um sure. But. Uh, you can kind of see this uh, this heat map where the essentially John Gibson is giving up a, a likelihood of a goal relative to league expected. He's more likely than league expected to give up a, a goal from the middle slot, which kind of makes sense because the Ducks are giving up really high quality chances there, and the models can't necessarily take into consideration um, the the fact that there is um, the fact that there is a, a pass or anything like that to, to make, make it as part of it my concern though honestly when i look at this chart has mainly to do with the uh the fact that he's giving up more than expected from the point yeah because i think that to me is what stands out and i think the you look side, at this yeah, yeah and, and so let me pull up stolars real quick and i i think that with stolars it's interesting because it's it's a similar concept but actually a little bit even more concerning in some ways granted the the sample size isn't there it's hard to really say Um, just because he hasn't played as much. But if I share his screen now, you'll be able to see that the likelihood of giving up a goal relatively expected, he's been fantastic in the slot with the same exact team in front of him playing the same exact poor defense, right? Solars has been great. And I think part of that comes to do with their play style, right? I I think John Gibson is a little bit more athletic. He's not someone that's necessarily going to ever be considered positionally sound, And that can maybe lead him to bite too hard and get beat by a cross ice pass a little bit easier. And while granted, and that's kind of getting to the systems things, right? The system doesn't necessarily play to his strength. Whereas Anthony Stoller is being such a big guy and being kind of a guy that's more so, uh, I think, a little bit quieter in his movement, more so relies on positional saves. And so that's why he's able to make those saves from those dangerous locations. I think the concern is that he's more likely to give up a goal from the point. And maybe part of that is, I mean, I think part of this is the the Carlson game, right? Where Carlson had a hat trick, and a lot of it were those floaters from the point. And so maybe part of it is just, he hasn't played enough to, to bring that back down. Yeah. But um, yeah, so- I think the,
1: Jake, I think those things would be really interesting to track over larger samples because you can really start inferring traits of the goaltenders with respect to the defense in front of them. So like if those uh, general trends continue for both Gibson and Stolars, that hypothesis that you put forward about the athleticism for Gibson making it really effective in front of the net holds more water, right? And sorry,
0: one thing I want to clarify on this, because B-Dolls is bringing up the fact, could also be that teams are up big against the Ducks when Stolars plays the third period, so teams aren't driving the net as much. While I think that that could be true, that's not necessarily what this chart's saying. This chart is taking essentially looking at the shot location and then looking at how many times that goalie saves shots from those locations and then essentially trying to equate for goaltender quality to say the, with this goalie in a shot from this location is less likely to go in than league average. And so it's not necessarily about that teams aren't driving those locations. It's the fact that wind shots are coming from there, stolers is more likely to make a save from that location than other players or right. other goalies. Um, so that's just a, a distinction to to make uh, about that. Um, okay, anything so, else?
1: Uh, so let's just wrap up real quick the quarter season review with coaching. So we've mm-hmm. touched upon this as well, but uh, give me your overall thesis statement about Dallas Akins in his fourth year as the Anaheim Ducks coach. We have surmised both through the CTP community on pods through Discord we really, I think, surmise that maybe this year would be a little bit different because we have new management. Uh, maybe there's a bolstered analytics department that could help Dallas Aikens. But I think as you and Felix have alluded to in previous pods, uh, there may be uh, an all-time high in terms of skepticism for Dallas Aikens. So give me your quarter season review of coaching. Hashtag Jake Unleashed.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's been poor, you know? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't honestly know if there's a whole lot more to say. I, I just think that, yeah. I, I think that, um I think Dimitri hit the nail on the head on the PDO cast talking about the fact that there isn't this necessary structure in this D-zone that, that's helping them out. These are things that, that the team should be practicing. They should be working on the fact that there isn't trust between the teammates on the ice, which is also one of um, Pat Verbeek's comments, right? Yes. I think that is actually very much, uh, that is a massive critique of the coaching staff. Because that is part of the big thing that the coaching staff is there to do is provide a system, provide a culture, provide everything where the team can gel and have chemistry on the ice. And I think that that, honestly, the more I think about it, is a massive critique of the team stating that, 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 that there's not trust between the yeah. players on the ice. And I think also part of that can go to a critique of constantly shifting things around and not optimizing the roster, right? You're not giving these guys runway outside of, to his credit, now he's had Zegers and Terry together with Henrique, which has worked really well. But, so, I think that all of that considered, it there's optimization issues, there's not using the players in the proper situation. I think if this team is truly this bad, right? Like, you and I both agree they're probably not as bad as they are, but th- if this is what it is this season, right? Then, to me, like, you should just let it be, throw throw McTavish as a second line center. Like screw it. Who cares? Like give him better line mates who get cares about veteran guys getting their, their pride hurt. This team is on, on pace for a sub 50 point season. Like that, 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 that that, that should be something that would hurt, should hurt their pride more than anything else.
1: Right? No, absolutely. And I would be fascinated to compare. We've had this discussion a lot about Aikens being, it seems like he has a very quick trigger to shuffle line mates and you can see that. It's a safety thing, out. I think. Right. And I, I'm just curious to see how anomalous that is, like with respect to league average. Like, when you, if you, that's take, a good point. Yeah. Like the top four time on ice lines for each team in the league, you know, I would be interested to see how the Ducks compare to other teams because the only line on the Ducks that stands out at all from that perspective is the top line of Henrik, Zegers, and Terry. It's kind of a mishmash of TOI for all of the other lines. And I I don't, you know, there may be a, a logical explanation for that from Aikens, but I don't sense that that's doing the team any favors. Yeah. Yep. So, all right. Well, I think we've gone through all of those topics for the quarter season review. Check out the article again on our website if you haven't looked at it. And Jake, I will pass the baton to you if we want to get two questions.
0: Yes. Yeah, so we'll start with Discord. Uh, then we will get to uh, uh, Twitch and YouTube. So we'll start with our Discord. Uh, so those who don't know, go to our uh, go to patreoncom You can join our Discord by subscribing at the dollar tier. Um, honestly, best place to to talk hockey. That is where Mike and I met. Was in there. and so this podcast this friendship there this everything comes from that discord so there's a lot of awesome awesome people in there that have helped create that so shout out to
1: discord you're all amazing. uh
0: so let's just start with this the puff had this last week um but i don't think we got to i think it came in after we were done recording so Mm -hmm. what is the market for john gibson and uh john Klingberg?
1: that's really interesting i actually so shit we may have gotten to this one whatever what did you guys ask that already yeah
0: but let's get your take real quick
1: well okay so here's here is an issue that I would bring up here so I, I heard this I think it was on Twitter earlier today somebody in a reply to um recent Ducks postings from somebody I don't remember who it was but there was this narrative being pushed that Klingberg's trade value is actually lower now a quarter way into the season than it was before and I wonder, Jake, what you think of that narrative. I'm not convinced that that's necessarily the case. Like, if you look at the analytics, he has struggled. His point production has taken a crater with this team. But do teams around the league still have that perception of him where, well, they understand he's on a team that's not doing very well, so we still think that we would give up a decent amount of assets to get him for a cup run?
0: It's possible. Like, it's possible that that his stock has crashed, right? Like it's possible that's the case I don't necessarily believe it but
1: yeah I agree
0: the the key thing here though is even if it has dropped this is still fine for the ducks take whatever you can get like this this was a a, a deal that you signed to with the distinct uh reality of just trading him at the deadline and getting assets back they paid they essentially paid seven million dollars um they paid seven million dollars for what could be a first or second round pick that's essentially the way to look at this and they had to but they had to spend that money anyways
1: yeah so i think for duck i totally agree i think for ducks fans you should look at it as okay if he continues to play this poorly well, let's be frank that's how he's played so far okay, maybe you fetch a second rounder instead of a first rounder. That's still a massive win for the team, right? They mm-hmm. All they had to do was pay him the salary for that one year or part of a year, and they're still getting an asset back. So it would still be good asset management from Verbeek, and, even if the returns a little lower.
0: And GMs love points. And Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so And even if he doesn't have it this year, he has the track record. All right. Uh, D Frenzy said, whether it's coaching defense or goaltending, is this the worst team in ducks history? They're on pace points wise. I think
1: I would defer to you on this, Jake, because you are more of the historian of of the ducks. No,
0: I mean, I didn't watch the late, like I have memories of the late 90 teams. Right. Um, and that type of stuff, but no, this team is not the worst team in ducks history. You look back at some of those teams and how devoid of talent they were, especially even the inaugural team. Um, this, this is not the worst team in Ducks history.
1: Um, so that brings up an interesting point, though, because you're looking at it from a team construction perspective. But from a points and results perspective, they may be on pace to be that. So it, it, it kind of brings up that conversation of, well, even if that ends up being the case over the season, maybe they will be one of the worst teams in franchise history. Um, we, I think, both believe that, with a different coaching staff under a little bit of a different circumstance, this would not even be close to the worst team in franchise history. So the fact that we're even having this conversation, I is, also don't a lot,
0: right? Now, now I'm just kind of looking really quickly at the the worst seasons in Ducks history, so I'm mm-hmm. just just be able to get an idea of the number of points. Uh, let's see, they had a 37 point season. Oh, that's a 48 game season. Never mind. Oh, that was a uh, lockout season. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, to be fair, there haven't been that many. Uh, let's see. 66 points. Looks like it was the league or season low for the team.
1: 2012 uh, or 13? No, yeah. 2000, 2001. Oh. Okay.
0: Yeah. 2012, 2013. That doesn't count because that was a 48 game season.
1: Got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's possible. It, I mean, it's, it's in the conversation. If it continues to trend this way, it's in the conversation for sure. Right. Yeah.
0: I, I think, I don't think it's going to happen. I think you look back on those seasons. Right. And especially the, the 66 point season, they, um, there was no, uh, there was no shootout. So it, I think the shootout kind of changes the the, the algebra here and the calculus here that, that makes it that. So, um, sure. Yeah, so I don't think so. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is a conversation I had. And D. Francis said, who is the worst coach this year, Dallas Akins or John Tortorella?
1: <laughs> wow. Well, it's uh, sort of pick your poison there. Yeah. I, I, I don't I'm, know. I feel like they're both probably cut from the same ilk in terms of the way that they view uh, uh, player attributes. I'm going to go um, torts. I'm going to go was-
0: torts just because of the – the neg- just, just the – everything about torts. Yep,
1: I was just going to have say the same thing. And, if I was forced to choose, I'd say torts.
0: But then again, like torts had some like put together a team with a decent structure, but the Flyers are garbage. It the them losing 10 straight is is hilarious. Um yeah, I don't know. It, it's just I yeah. Tortorella is not good. He um, he lost
1: me with this team in the training camp videos that the Flyers posted that like before the season started. Mm-hmm and torts has just been effusive in his praise of delorier and i think but, after sitting through three or four years, like man. however long that stretch was when he was on the ducks it's just like oh man it's the and, perfect and you know, i play. fully
0: admit there there's built-in bias in that that opinion so that take that for what it is uh, the sure. puff said if we do end up with the first overall and get Connor bedard what's the likelihood we can hold on to Terry zegris mctavis drysdale zellweger minchukov uh or are we losing one in the next uh two to three years
1: Interesting. So I think one of the – I think a big linchpin for that question is Terry. So he's maybe the one person in that group that doesn't fit from an age perspective. He's older, right? Mm -hmm. So, Jake, what do you think of that? I mean, this gets to, I think, an overall point of will Verbeek choose to give Terry a long-term contract, knowing that at least Zegress and Drysdale are probably going to get something – Extensive, although the injury to Drysdale maybe complicates that a bit. But they're not, so they're
0: not gonna, they're not gonna lose one in the next two to three years. The key thing to understand, right, is that sure they're gonna have to pay Terry Zegers and Drysdale, but McTavish still has two more years on his ELC after this one. Selweger is gonna have three years on his ELC. Minchukov is probably not gonna be in the NHL for two years, so he has four years until he's an RFA. So there's a lot of time still. And same thing with Bedard, Bedard's going to have three years on his ELC. So maybe four or five years down the line, like when the ducks after they've potentially already won a cup, hopefully then maybe they're in a cap situation, but you, that is something that happens in those situations. And if they end up being able to win and that, that is all gravy and you figure it out from there. Um, so I, I think they'll they'll easily be able to hold on to all those guys, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, Agreed. Yeah. After that, who knows? Uh, let's see. D-Frenzy said, Will Akins cost towers the Calder like he did with Trevor Zegers?
1: <laughs> wow. That's a somewhat uh, controversial take as it is, if you know my opinion on this issue. But uh, one could say that Akins uh, buoyed Zegers towards almost winning the Calder. But I do see the other side of the argument where his you know, babysitting of Zgris held him back from a points perspective. He also didn't play so, him with Terry last year. Exactly. So I would say uh, if I had to choose, I would say yes. But McTavish is still going to be in the conversation no matter what. I mean, even from a points perspective.
0: Yeah, I think that if he keeps playing with Jones and Leeson, it's going to be hard. I think the power play is going to help him. But, I mean, you all look right. at you look at the guy that they played on on Sunday. You look at Matty Beniers, the situations he's being put in, the, the line mates that he's getting. If Mason McTavish is with Leeson and, and Jones for the rest of the year, it's going to make it hard for him to win. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, Plant Rich asks, uh, since Dryzo went down, how bad do you think losing him has hurt the Ducks? What part of his game do you think they missed the n- most?
1: I would say that it's been a pretty substantial loss, especially like we mentioned earlier in the pod, the NHL level lack of depth on the blue line, right? Like organizationally, they have a lot of depth now, especially with this last draft in the pipe, but Drysdale has been steadily improving. I mean, he was God awful the first uh, season during the COVID shortened season when he debuted. He improved last season and he was improving this season. So... I think it's been substantial. It doesn't explain away all of their issues on the blue line, but what's your perspective, Jake? That That's kind of my take on that.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I think losing him has hurt the ducks. I don't know how much though. Um, it, it's yeah. really, it's really tough to say. Um, he was starting to play better in his own zone, but still wasn't fantastic. I think he, I, I think what's hurting them a bit more is their their usage of certain players. Um, so I think having Drysdale certainly would help, but I don't know if it's this like linchpin for the team.
1: Yep, and him being in the lineup would not be a silver bullet for the the defensive court. So yeah, there, there's issues that run deeper.
0: Yep. Um. So all right, Plant Ranch said, uh, "Who's one name you've heard the Ducks trading that you think the Ducks shouldn't trade? Anyone?"
1: interesting so is this kind of a projection for the trade deadline i guess that we're that we're looking at here yeah well i think we can agree that if the season continues on the trajectory that it's going klingberg's gone right and that he probably should be dealt for whatever assets they can get back um well i guess one common name that comes up in this context is gibson and we've had this conversation in the off season uh you know i don't know if we want to rehash that now but has his value changed at all through the first part of the season compared to the off season probably not that much seems Mm -hmm. like the league-wide perception would probably be the same Mm -hmm. so i can't think of anyone that's on the table for potentially trading that i would philosophically say they should not trade like unless it's Mm -hmm. a young you know uh, an asset that's in their kind of developmental window then i would say no if they can deal yeah i I, right. I don't
0: think there's really been a name that's been thrown around that they should be trading that um that they shouldn't i i just don't see any of that so i mean maybe adam henrique if his name's been thrown around um but even then like if someone's willing to to trade an asset for henrique like it's not this be all end all that he stays on the ducks, but that might be the closest person that I would maybe keep on this team from a quote unquote leadership perspective. Sure. But even then, like anyone in that range, if they get a good offer on them, I would be open to kind of listening on it and seeing what they could get. Definitely. Um, uh, if there's a name that hasn't been out there that I think the duck should look at the, what value they have, that name would probably be Isaac Lindstrom for me. <laughs> No, I genuinely think like Isaac oh, no. Lindstrom probably has a decent amount of trade value because I think I wonder, teams like what he does and I don't I I don't I think you and I are both on board that I think he is overvalued by a lot of people.
1: Right. And I, I also wonder in that context if he cuz he signed a a 3.6 million dollar two-year extension or new you know new contract in arbitration this off season. I wonder if that would affect his value a bit that extra year and him being a little bit pricey for what what you're getting but it could be that the perception of him is like this useful quote-unquote responsible bottom six forward uh is pervasive throughout the league so I think that is kind of an interesting wild card to think about
0: uh sorry he is on a yeah you're right two-year yeah uh, 3.6 mil wasn't arbitration though um, okay okay uh, they he filed for arbitration but it they never agree. actually went to arbitration, so sorry. Want to quickly make that point. The puff said, "How would you train the broad tra- uh, change the broadcast team to make it less bad?" I'll jump on this first. Yeah, I please. think ju- I think just I think providing good information, and, and by that what I mean is relaying things from the rule book. Um on goaltender interference, on various different re- reviews, things like that. I think that's a really good start where it's just providing value of valuable information in that aspect instead of just going off of kind of what you're thinking. And I don't know how much of that is on specifically the broadcasters and how much of that is on, on the crew. It's just kind of like an overall thing of it needs to kind of be relayed quickly. Um, yeah. And I think that that's an overall flaw with the broadcast at times is that information's not relayed quick enough to provide value. And I think another thing is providing system, system breakdowns and intermissions. And I know people aren't going to like to hear this, but it's one thing that the Kings broadcast does really well. Mm. You there's one thing that um, the uh, crack or the, yeah, the Seattle Kraken broadcast that they do that very well, very well. They have Allison Luke in there to provide some more analytic heavy information and really make it digestible for a lot of people. And there was one clip that was floating around about the root broadcast with, um, with JT Brown specifically talk about the Kings, uh, one, three, one and how they use that system, uh, uh, one, three, one, four check and essentially how you break it down. And then there was an exact example of that. And they pointed that out. And just like those things about being able to, to provide that information, provide value to the people. I think that that's one thing that can be lacking at times is these kind of more, big pick these breakdowns of the overall structure and system of the team instead of these more narrative based opinions.
1: Yeah. I I think those are great points. I would also add quickly, Jake, two things. The first thing I think that would help um, from a broadcast perspective is not trying to push certain positive spins on the fan base, which I think they can do overtly at times. Like if the team is really struggling, you don't have to accentuate every single problem, but just, not kind of being so overt about the spin. The other thing I would say is a positive um, uh, element to this question. I think there are some good things that go on in the broadcast. I think we could spend time on that. But
0: Ali Lozoff does really good interviews.
1: Dude, I was just going to say, I think especially recently with Cam Fowler um, Mm -hmm. and some of the other players after, honestly, like really gut-wrenching performances on the road um, and recently – I think she has towed the line brilliantly of asking hard questions and mm-hmm. doing it in a way that is respectful to the players so yep. there's some good things going on but obviously things that can be improved
0: yep so. all right so that's it for our discord so we'll get to our twitch chat and our youtube so we're on youtube you go to youtube.com slash cash spawn mention us lately we're trying to get to a thousand subs we're getting closer and closer every single week so we do appreciate that support but if you're watching this listening to this however you're you're consuming this hit that subscribe button like this video hit the notification to be notified when we go live with our, our, our videos, but yeah, subscribe to the channel, please, helps out more than you can imagine, and if you also want to support us, go to twitch.tv slash Crash Spawn, where we go live each and every Monday, the time is flexible at this point between 7 and 8pm uh, with how things are going, um, but if you have Amazon Prime, you get one free Twitch Prime gaming sub each and every month, you do help support the show more than you can imagine, you can be just like Dan Grimshaw, who resubbed. they've been subscribed for 21 months, and that guy Bobski, shout out to Bob, uh, who resubbed for 24 months and says it's, it's time for his terrible twos. Uh, so let's get into these questions first. This came from Lou. Uh, question, why will Dax Danielson be match of the year? So the, for those of you that don't know, uh, me and Mike are two very prominent members of the wrestling chat on our Discord. So there may be some wrestling questions coming our way. So and, and why will Dax Danielson be match of the year?
1: And to go further, we also attended an AEW yes. show last year at the forum. So Yes, well, I think Lou is probably alluding to the fact that a member of FTR is in this match. So yeah. I'm going to guess that that's why he's framing this question the way that he is. Yeah. However, having said that, it very well could be. That's going to be a banger.
0: Yeah, it's not going to be match of the year, though.
1: <laughs> it's not. There Dude, were too many good. Know? There were
0: too many. There were too many good, good, good matches on uh, Full Gear. Matches of the year were on that card. Sorry, Luke. or, or
1: uh, one might say that jericho's last match on yeah. was a match there you go under
0: rich 20 said with what we've heard from uh pat verbeek so far am i still allowed to chant ha- the hashtag fire akins chant the next time i visit the honda center i wow. think patience i think patience is uh, yeah I, I think probably not a good idea to chant that Let, let's settle down on that but uh patience is key i think Pat Verbeek has a plan at least. And so it's good to hear on that. He also asked, am I cheering? So is Jake cheering for the U S or just Tottenham hotspur players? So this is related to the world cup. I'm going to assume. Um, and, uh, so for full clarity, the only team I'm fully like all on board rooting for is the U S like that is my ride or die. They are my team. Obviously they are the team that I stress watch, Yeah, but, I try to I try to watch a lot of the different games in the World Cup, and I cheer for the teams that, to be completely honest, Tottenham players are on.
1: Um, so, and I think you, that's fairly common for the World Cup. Like you're the country that you're in is probably the number one, but yeah. you can pick secondary and tertiary yeah. rooting teams based on the players of the non World Cup teams.
0: And like, yeah, with when the U.S. played England and Harry Kane got uh, knocked off balance and fell down. I was terrified and was like, oh, this is horrible. I just don't want him to get hurt. This is right. like, I, I want the U.S. to win, but please don't get hurt, Harry, because that would really suck for the rest of the season. Please uh,
1: don't have an 18-month injury.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Beat all said, question for me. talked a lot about uh, size with his D prospects today. And interesting talking about Warren being a shutdown guy. He seems high on him. Yeah. Um, I, I guess actually-
1: kind of, Yeah. He, he actually mentioned in that interview, that's a really good point by B. Dottle. Um, Verbeek explicitly called out Warren and Minukov as potential future pairing together. Yeah. So it seemed like to me from that and also from kind of some previous comments that we could parse together from Verbeek, I think he likes this idea of pairing a highly skilled blue liner with a size person and somebody that has a physical presence. And that would be kind of the epitome of that. But I wonder what you think about that too, Jake.
0: Yeah, it sounds like that. I'm curious to see how that's going to work in practice. I think a lot of people focus on his size comments because they are kind of more not analytic comments, I guess maybe would be how you do. Because a lot of people in the analytics community don't always look at size because it can be overvalued at times. But I think the key thing and I brought this up before is it's about using size properly um, with reach, with things like that, not necessarily caring about guys that go out of the way to make a hit with their size, but utilizing their size to, to break up plays, to clear guys out things that are actually effective. Um, And, and but if, I, I think a lot of what's missed is people focus on that, but there are quotes also of Pat Verbeek saying the team needs to get faster. Absolutely. And so I think that people focus on certain elements of quotes from Verbeek while also missing other aspects of what he said and so like i, I think when talking about zellweger sure with zellweger and minchukov he said that they need to kind of work on their structure and their d zone but really complement their first pass and how they're going to be helping get out in transition and i think that it's a fair thing to look at with maybe u- utilizing um noah warren with a pavel minchukov and yeah. having that more the guy that can really sit back and allow minchukov to just go and dance around in a good right. way
1: I think it's a really good question from B. Dottle. and I think the proof is going to be in the pudding over the next couple of years. We're going to see what sort of combinations and what kind of philosophy Verbeek wants. That's ultimately going to be embodied in what we see on the ice. I think the yeah. first 20 games this year, it's hard to discern that given that Aikens is on the team option and it's a weird year, right? But we're going to get more clarity on his vision, uh, Verbeek's vision going forward.
0: Yep. Uh, let's see. Uh, Sean Fight asked us, and we got one. We'll do two quick questions, actually. Sorry, YouTube. I know I just said it, any questions, but we'll do quick ones. Did you watch any of Survivor Series War Games? I didn't watch any of it, but he asked War Games. He said he liked it, but prefer the top being on top of the cage. Um, but Sami Zayn is super over. Um, sorry, actually, we'll get one more, and there's a good one actually that just came in, so we'll add that. Um, so yeah, Sami Zayn is super over. I like, I prefer war games i think to blood and guts actually because i think not having the top on is kind of a better look and that's yeah. coming from a complete AEW mark but i think the changes they made to war games to not have a top on the cage actually are beneficial sure it eliminates people being up there but yeah so we'll, war
1: we'll... games and war games in general is just a blast whether yeah. it's wcw whether it's wwe yeah. gcw yeah. it's awesome yep yeah. So, trying to get too
0: wrestling in depth here with nerd talk, because usually I feel like shutting me down. And as I catch myself like going in depth, I'm like, "Wow, this is wrestling nerd talk, and no one probably wants to hear this outside of you and me." Uh, but yeah. Defend the Nest yeah. said, "Why have uh, where's why have the Ducks' long-term conditioning loans only lasted one game, i.e., Carrick and now Vaknin?" I mean, I don't really have a good answer outside of the fact of maybe it was just um. Maybe it was just a single game that was bad or single game. That's all they really need.
1: And then they were good to go. Is that typical? I feel, I don't actually know. Like what it, is-
0: I, I forget the exact amount, but it's like two to three games is typically what they're allowed. Okay. I, I don't have the CBA open, but it, it's written in the CBA. And then okay. Reagan's all said, my opinion of, uh, of grant is well known to those in my house. And when he scores, I always look like the misinformed one. How do I face my friends and family knowing what lies ahead? <laughs> um, yeah, this is a tough one, right? Because I, I think that this is an interesting question, and this is why I wanted to get to this one when I saw it pop in. Because obviously over the years, I've been someone that's spoken out about Derek Grant, his five-on-five play, things like that, as has Felix. And there were years where he scored a bunch of goals. And it even happened last year when he was on, on Zegers and Terry's wing and was able to score. Um, I think the way to put it is that there is something with shooting variance, right? And mm-hmm. so that's one thing that can come into play. And sure, there are going to be games where he plays better but if you look at the overall play when he's on the ice the ducks are getting outshot and outchanced almost every single time he's on the ice over the last however many years and even from a pure goals perspective right if they are if they're more so people that care about goals they don't really like analytics all that stuff just a goals four percentage which is essentially plus minus but eliminating the bad parts of plus minus it's just looking at 5v5 it's not looking at the randomness that happens with the other parts of plus minus and Derek Grant is typically below 50% the last couple of years and five on five on ice goals four percentage um and, and so this is a player that has been not good like I'm I'm currently just going to look up his, his on ice metrics really quickly just so I can kind of relay them to you and uh hopefully this this helps uh you in those conversations with people that are more so kind of trying to make the point that he he's actually been better. Um, But yeah, looking at this. uh, So let's see last season or this season so far, 29% goals, four percentage, 30% expected goals, four percentage. So it's about right in line. So basically when Derek grants on the ice, only 30% of the goals that happen are for 70% of the goals, Between the two teams, go in in the Ducks net when he's on the ice. Last season, 40%. Season before that, 45%. Season before that in Anaheim, 40%. So even though, sure, maybe he's scoring the goal here and there. When he's on the ice, the Ducks are getting outchanced. And as a result of getting outchanced, they're getting outscored. So this is someone where, sure, maybe he's getting you a goal here and there. But he is not... Because for whatever reason, he's able to find himself in good chances for good looks every once in a while. But it doesn't happen enough where he's able to continually get offense for the team. And instead, he's continually left defending and continually getting scored against.
1: Yeah. And I would just add one quick thing to that, Jake. If you look at Grant's metrics, especially in his tenure with the Ducks, he's been below replacement both offensively and defensively. But he has been significantly worse defensively. So yeah. you can find, you know, there may be something to, especially from a goals for perspective, like there may be something to the fact that, you know, he finds a way to put the puck in the net in certain situations and he's gotten oh. some very swing his way that way. But systematically, he is a net negative on ice for the team, especially because of his defensive
0: performance. Well, it's an eye tech eye test impact perspective, right? Of you see a guy score a goal, you think they're good. and you see a guy score a goal multiple times over a season, it pops in your head, oh, this guy's a good player. But it's not necessarily seeing the grander picture of it all and just letting those kind of smaller, more individually impactful plays um, be your entire opinion of a player. And if you're doing that, you are looking at, I mean, how many goals, how many points did Derek Grant have last season? I have hockey reference open somewhere um, in all of my million tabs that I have open right (laughs) now. But I think he had like 30 points, right, last year, something along those lines. Um, Let let me see real quick as I pull it up open. Um, But if you go and look, let's see, Derek Grant had 29 points last year, 15 points and 14 goals. But at the end of the day, that's 29 shots, right? If you just kind of think of it per, from that perspective, very you're judging ju- judging an entire player's per, uh, season and how your entire perception of a player is off of 29 shots on goal. Yep. When, let's just see very quickly if I remove rates and just simply only look at last season. He was on the ice for, and purely looking at shots uh, on goal four. He was on the ice for 368 shots on goal four. Yeah. So you're limiting your opinion to only 29 of those 368, and you're also not looking at the fact that he was on the ice for four hundred and forty-three shot shots on goal against.
1: Yeah. He's and kind so, of the mirror he's kind of the mirror image of delorier Like yeah. if you look at the performance of Grant and delorier on the ducks the last few years, Grant offensively is slightly below replacement and really awful defensively. And then Mm -hmm. Delorier was close to replacement defensively, but a black hole offensively. So there's nuances in the way that I think we kind of criticize them, but overall, both of those players and especially grant in the context of this discussion deserve the criticism for being net negatives on ice. It's just there. We have a big enough sample for it.
0: Yeah. So all right. I think that's going to do it for us tonight, though. So if you want to support both of us, right, you can go support Mike. Follow him on Twitter at Mike D flow, right? Did I get that Mike right?
1: Under, Mike underscore D flow. And also you can support Felix at Felix underscore. Sport. Yeah, he, he's been ghost
0: <laughs> Felix. That's how it's shown on the screen. I did not have time to necessarily change that
1: and make do all
0: that work for it. Having a four month old is um, uh, really takes up time um so uh but you yeah so you can go find mike there you can find me on twitter at reindeer games 91 if you want to support our show go to uh patreon.com slash crash the pond where you can uh support us if you have uh want to support us at the dollar tier you get access to our uh patreon exclusive discord it's a great time great place to talk hockey um something that that i think everyone who's a ducks fan should go and do Who knows what Twitter is going to eventually become. Uh, And so it's a great place to connect with Ducks fans. We had a couple people actually in the Discord this week, I think, say that. I think with Thanksgiving being around and everything like that. uh, Saying that kind of they were more so on Reddit in the past. And it was more so just kind of like posting and there were other people posting. And that they were just really thankful for the Discord because it feels like kind of a community. And creating friendships and things like that and so i'm really thankful for that place and really thankful for other than that but if you want to support us also at the five dollar tier you get two bonus episodes a month uh where you get me and felix kind of more shooting the shit going off the cuff a lot of things like that and then at the 15 dollars tier you can do that if you just really want to support us and help us out other ways you can support us if you uh want to leave us a review or rating on apple Podcasts or spotify helps more than you can imagine puts us up the charts really helps us out. So if you have not done the app, please go do that for us. Obviously go check out our YouTube. Um, find me at Twitter, uh, reindeer games 91. Go check out the site, Crash the Pond. Mike is one of the the main people that's going to be writing there, so please go support his work. He's doing a great job at the website. Go check out the Sporting Tribune, where you can find me and Felix, uh, writing about the Ducks over there. Um, and there's going to be more coming from there. Keep an eye out there. Oh, yeah, go check out Felix on the PDO cast. I'm just throwing out a bunch of stuff here. Anything that you think I forgot.
1: No, I think I'm glad you included the Felix interview on PDOcast. That was awesome. And just came out today. So check that out.
0: Yep. All right. Have a good one all. Uh, Bye. Peace.